Uh, we're now entering into a season of epiphany. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is a season where we focus on the teachings of Christ to the world. Uh, and we, we, we specifically, we focus on how his teachings weren't just to a, a select few, but were meant to be passed forward for all of the earth to hear. But if we're going to focus on his teachings, where do we start? Would you emphasize what Jesus taught about himself? Should we start there? Would you hone in on select teachings of ethics? Would you highlight Christ's anthropology? All of these things are a part of Christ's teaching. They're a part of his ministry. But I think there, there's one thing we can say that summarizes Christ's teaching. And Christ says it himself. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Everything Jesus taught and everything he did falls under this umbrella of the kingdom of God. And so for the first three weeks of Epiphany, we're going to focus on this theme, the kingdom of God. And in our text today, Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21, Jesus tells a parable about the kingdom of God. And the question he asks in the parable is the question I want to focus on this morning. What is the kingdom of God like? So open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 13. And before we get into the parable, uh, we need to look at what leads into the parable. Because something uh, takes place, and then the parable is told in response to this event. Verses 10 through 11 tell the story of a woman that was disabled. She was unable to fully straighten herself for a very long time. It was actually 18 years that she was locked in this bent position. And in that culture, being bent over was actually a position of shame. So for 18 years, she was perpetually locked in a position of shame. And on top of that, Luke tells us that uh, she was afflicted by a demon so that her disease wasn't just a physical ailment, it was actually a spiritual condition. And her disease then and her spiritual condition would have separated her from relationships. It would have separated her from community. And in her mind, it would have even separated her from God. And then in verse 12 through 13, Jesus miraculously heals this woman. He restores her health, which also restores her to community. And all of this takes place in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And the fact that this happened on the Sabbath is controversial. It's controversial because the Sabbath was a major mark within Judaism of what it meant to be Jewish. It was one of the marks that made the Jewish people distinct from the rest of the nation. And it was this mark that helped them understand who they were. And as they waited for God to come and establish his kingdom to uh, restore the nation of Israel to a place of power, they believed that there were things you could do to, to expedite the process. And keeping the Sabbath was one of those things. And so there were rules upon rules designed to protect the Sabbath. Some believed that the strictest adherence to the law was necessary so that you could usher in the kingdom. An unfaltering holiness was required. And so when you kept the Sabbath, you did it right. You didn't err one hair's breadth because the kingdom of God depended on it which meant one thing, no working. That much was clear. The ruler of the synagogue then is understandably frustrated when Jesus seems to work on the Sabbath by healing. He says to Jesus in verse 14, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. In other words, she's been sick for 18 years. What's another day? Don't jeopardize the Sabbath. This reveals a little bit about this man's theology. He's, he's, he's more concerned about the letter of the law. 
And, and he thinks that God is more concerned about the letter of the law than the people that God gave the law to about their well-being. And so Jesus responds to this man, and he says in verse 15, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus, he's essentially saying that God cares more about the spirit of the law than the letter of the law. That if a donkey needs to be cared for on the Sabbath, how much more a woman whose health needs to be brought to restoration? How much more one of your own who is crippled in your midst? So this is the backdrop. This is the backdrop to the text that we're going to focus on today in verses 18 through 21. Jesus says in response to this event, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall we compare it? A woman being healed and standing up straight on the Sabbath has something to do with the kingdom of God. Now, talking about kingdoms, it's a little bit foreign to us, isn't it? Like, we don't, we don't talk about kings and knights and dominions unless there's some Game of Thrones geeks in here. But this is not the language or the culture that we're used to anymore. We can imagine it like... We, we can see the equivalent in presidents and countries and prime ministers. But then talking about the kingdom of God, this language is even more foreign to our ears. What is the kingdom of God like? But to Jewish ears, hearing this word, the kingdom of God, this would evoke all sorts of images. Most of all, it would bring them to this picture of God as their king. Because the Jews believe that God, the creator, is the God of the whole world. He is king over all the world and he rules over the whole world. But his rule and his reign is not yet universally recognized. But God had given them promises through their prophets. Promises that one day he would establish an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne. And so when Jewish ears hear the kingdom of God, it would do two things. It would bring them pictures of God as their king, but it would also stir their hearts with desire to see God fulfill those promises, to see God establish his kingdom on earth. And they believed that when he would, it would be swift and it would be definitive. What Jesus goes on to say then just defies all categories. It, it's not what they expected. He says in verse 19, the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Kingdom, when you think of kingdom, it evokes messages of power, you know, crowns and and, and jewels and, and, and armies. And it evokes you know, images of decadence, uh, good meals, uh, filet mignon, you know, aged whiskey. Like This is what we think of when we think of kingdom, the very best stuff. But that's not where Jesus draws his images from. He goes to very common places. He goes to a garden, a kitchen, a gardener, you know, a chef, a, a man, a woman, very ordinary people. He doesn't draw on images of the king. He actually draws on images of the people of the kingdom. Each of you were handed a small envelope when you came in this morning with the word wait written on it. Did you wait? Did anyone not wait? Anyone going to confess? We have confession in the service next week. You'll be okay. You go ahead and open this very cautiously because what's inside is very small. What's in here is, a, uh, is some seeds. And what you'll see is, 
it's not a mustard seed, actually. Um, I have no idea what kind of seed it is. It was what we had in our house. But a mustard seed is significantly smaller than this. But it helps us tangibly envision what the kingdom of God is like. Try to take one of those seeds between two fingers. Right? Like you, can, you can barely hold it between two fingers. And, and you can see how the seed could easily be overlooked. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. A tiny and small, almost unnoticeable speck. But you can take that small and noticeable speck and you can plant it and see what sort of power it inherently has. A few years ago, while Julia and I were living in Orlando, we joined a community garden. It was brilliant. We loved this. It was just a couple-minute walk from our house, and uh, we got to meet a lot of people. There were, I think, 12 garden beds, and they were all made out of these, like, really thick planks of wood, and each plot was about four feet by eight feet. We, we really enjoyed it. We planted carrots. We planted tomatoes, cucumbers, lettuce, eggplant, and, of course, because Julia is southern, we planted okra. And none of you know what okra is. It's okay. You can Google it later. Uh, it was wonderful to have. And Julia, she was really proud of the garden. I was proud of the garden. And needless to say, delicious food abounded in the Stern household. And then one day, we decided to plant a spearmint seed. Because spearmint is delicious, especially in tea. We had discovered this during our time in Israel. And before we knew it, a little spearmint shrub popped up in the right-hand corner of our garden. And it was good. Very exciting. But then that little seed that popped up into a shrub, we, it lay roots under the whole garden bed. And, and one day, in the middle of the garden, we're like, there's a spearmint shrub. And then the next day, at the other end of the garden, there's a, a spearmint shrub. And the, the, the spearmint had taken over the whole garden. So we, we started ripping up the spearmint. And just when we thought we had ripped it all up, the next day there would be spearmint again. And it, it even spear, spilled out of the garden bed into the ground around the garden bed. Like, we could not contain the spearmint. And it, it just became comical as the spearmint continued to overtake our garden plot. The lesson is this, spearmint is no rookie sport. It doesn't take much Googling to discover that you don't plant spearmint in an open bed. You have to put it in a, in a small container. And they actually encourage rookie gardeners to do this because it's encouraging. You, you can't kill it. It'll just grow. So put it in a, in a separate plot. But that's not what we did. Our spearmint, our, that seed, that, that tiny speck, it was invasive. It, it overtook the garden. To Jesus' audience, they knew you don't plant a mustard seed in your garden. Like its dubious friend, Spearmint, it is a wild card in the garden world. It takes over. But the man in Jesus' parable ignores this conventional wisdom. It says that he plants the seed in his garden and that the seed grows into a tree. A mustard tree... Uh, in Palestine, it, it's anywhere from eight to 10 feet tall. This is a photo of me in Palestine. And um, <laughs> as you can see, it, it's very large, right? It, it, it takes over. And, and this is what people would be envisioning. This man planted a seed, it will take over his garden. And that's what it would do. Jesus says, it, it grew, it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The garden becomes a tree, and the tree a home for the birds. And this is a very evocative image for Jesus' listeners. 
St. Peter's, we just got some office space donated to us, and we have a pretty spectacular view. It's just down the street. We're on the third floor overlooking an alley, very glamorous. And there's a power line between our building and the building across from us. And as you can see, this power line is often filled with pigeons. They just, they fill it. And my astute observation is this, pigeons are filthy, filthy, violent creatures. Like they are always eating the strangest stuff, garbage. And then one day I witnessed a pigeon fight a crow. And I, I live tweeted it and people were you know, placing bets, the, the pigeon won, but farmers, Farmers, when they think of birds, when they think of, they, they, they don't think of beautiful eagles. They're thinking, these are feisty, violent creatures. They're going to eat my produce. Think about what Jesus is saying here. The inclination is to protect the garden from the birds. And this inclination, he is saying, is misplaced. The garden itself is transformed into a home for the birds. Why birds? Most scholars think that Jesus is pulling from Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 through 24, which was our first reading this morning. God, in that, in that chapter, he's talking about a small, insignificant twig and planting it in Israel. God says, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it, will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and I make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make dry, the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it. In a few places in the Old Testament, uh, birds is a metaphorical word for the nations, all the nations, the entire world outside of the small nation of Israel. They're called the birds. Jesus is saying that God is planting something small in the nation of Israel, but it will grow and transform the nation into a home for the whole world. A little thing overtakes the whole and provides for the many. That's the point of the mustard seed parable. And then Jesus tells a follow-up parable. Uh, he says in verse 21, the kingdom is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. A pinch of leaven, some dough, three measures in that dough, it would produce enough bread to feed 150 people. This is a ludicrous image. This is more bread than what a single household would need. It could feed the entire village. Again, a little thing overtakes the whole and it provides for many. So keeping all this background information in mind, what would these parables have meant to Jesus' original listeners? What do these parables tell us about what the kingdom of God is like? I want to highlight two things. First, the kingdom of God starts small, but it's invasive and it grows. People believed, uh, the people listening to Jesus, they believed that when the kingdom of God would come, as I mentioned, it would be immediate. It would be uh, noticeable and it would happen immediately. It, would, it wouldn't be this small, almost invisible beginning. That wasn't on the table. They expected massive governmental upheaval. They expected swift justice, not a mustard seed being planted in a garden. Jesus dismantles this expectation. 
And he says that the kingdom of God actually starts in the tiny, obscure places. It starts with things like a woman being healed. It starts in places like a garden or a kitchen. It starts with lives being transformed by the power of God, not by governments being overthrown. But Jesus, he wasn't exaggerating either when he says it'll go from being a small thing to a big thing. He, he wasn't exaggerating saying the mustard seed will become a tree, the leaven will become a lot of bread. The kingdom of God on earth has grown rapidly and its growth is actually difficult to explain. There's a book by a guy named Rodney Stark. He's an acclaimed sociologist and the book is called The Rise of Christianity. And in that book, he looks at Christianity's growth during 40 AD to 350 AD. And during that time, the population of the Roman Empire was roughly 60 million people, give or take. And in 350 AD, uh, over 50% of the population had become Christian. There's a popular misconception, though, that when Constantine became the emperor of Rome, he legislated Christianity as the legal religion and then converted the nation. That the growth of Christianity was political. It was Constantine enforcing religion on people that didn't want it. But this is so far from the truth of what the historical evidence shows. The evidence is that um, that 50% was already there when Constantine had become emperor. That Christianity had grown to that point. So when Constantine made Christianity the legal religion of Rome, he was simply recognizing a reality that had already existed within Rome. The question is, how? How did Christianity grow to the point of becoming half of the Roman Empire? Secular scholars estimate that in 40 AD, there was merely 1,000 Christians. But by the time we get to 350 AD, there were 33 million Christians. To reach that size, Stark argues, Christianity had to grow by 40% every decade. That's the math. It's astronomical growth. No other religious movement in the history of the world has ever seen this amount of growth and sustained it for that amount of time. What's the basis of the growth, though? It's not just arithmetic. Stark argues that Christianity actually offered a better vision for human flourishing. He says uh, the early Christians radically and attractively redefined how God relates to man and how, how people are supposed to relate to one another. He said that Christianity provided social services that the government didn't provide. They cared for the poor and the sick and the widows. He said that Christianity treated slaves and women better than all of the other religions did. That Christians regarded human life as more sacred and had more children than their pagan neighbors. And lastly, the big thing for him was that Christianity was open to people of all ethnicities, unlike other religions. In essence, Stark is saying, Christians never lost sight of the fact that the message of the gospel is for people locked in positions of shame and brokenness people like this unnamed woman in Luke. Stark concludes, I believe that it was the religion's particular doctrines that permitted Christianity to be among the most sweeping and successful revitalization movements in history. And it was the way these doctrines took on actual flesh, the way they directed organizational actions and individual behavior that led to the rise of Christianity. What all this data shows us is that the kingdom really is like a mustard seed that overtakes the garden. The pinch of yeast that leavens the dough. One simple truth changes everything. 
one thought gets planted in our minds and we can't shake it. You hear, God loves you. And you can't shake that thought. You keep mulling it over and over. You read a brilliant argument for the, the historical truth of the resurrection and you can't shake that. You're thinking dead stuff comes back to life. And then one day you confess Jesus is Lord, but that one confession leads to your life being transformed and not just parts of your life, but you find that every area of your life, your career, your, your relationships, your your, your preferences, your hobbies, they're all shaped by that confession. Jesus is Lord. That truth gets implanted, and like uh, the leaven, it permeates your whole life. And so what we see, though, in the growth of Christianity, it's not that Christians were really nice and decent people, but they were following Jesus, and they were being empowered by the truth of the gospel, they are being empowered by the Holy Spirit, that, that when Jesus said that the kingdom will grow, and as you pray, Lord, uh, our king, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that will actually happen, and you will see growth. The growth is, is God working through his people. When Stark wrote this book in, in 96, he wasn't a Christian. He was a secular scholar. He was a sociologist, and an acclaimed one. He still is. But in, in 2007, he gave his life to Jesus. And I can't help but think that he couldn't shake um, the data that he had discovered. How else do you explain it? How else do you explain such a rapid sociological phenomenon that has happened in no other religion? How do you explain that vision for life that stood in opposition to the, the dominant culture that came with persecution, that people were still drawn into that life? You can't shake that truth. And so if you don't believe in Christianity and you're here this morning, we want you to know like, you can have all the time you need to figure out if Jesus really is who he said he is. And I think you've, you sincerely need to grapple with Christianity's origins and its beginnings because it is unexplainable outside of the power of God. Now the fact that the kingdom starts small I think should also be very encouraging to us all. I don't know about you, but I often feel like a small, insignificant speck in our globally connected world. I fall into the notion that one person really can't change anything, uh, and, and that the glass probably is half empty. But that just is not true in the kingdom of God. It's actually a lie. The woman who was healed by Jesus, she was small. She was insignificant. She was an outcast of society. She was broken. She was someone no one wanted to touch. But she's the type of person that God had his eyes set on. She's the type of person who encounters the power of the gospel. She's the type of person who gets swept up into the kingdom of God. And while she might not ever have had significant influence, her significance is not found in her influence, but in the kingdom that she belongs to. And it's when the gospel comes to small people like her, small people like us, it leavens us, it, it fills us, it, it overflows through us, and, it, and the gospel always comes to us on its way to someone else. We're small, there's no doubt about that, but we're not overlooked. We are small, but we are not overlooked. You matter to God. Even as a church plant, we're, we're small and insignificant in the big picture of our city, let alone the world. There's over 600,000 people in Vancouver proper. On average right now, we have about 80 people coming per Sunday, which makes us 0.0001% of 
of the population. And we talk about wanting to seek renewal in the city. We, we aren't even noticeable. But our hope is not in our influence. Our hope is not in our own power. Our hope is in our king who takes small things like us, small things like church plants, small things in his kingdom, and he uses them to do more than we could ever imagine. And even if our smallness never changed at St. Peter's, even if we're not here in a year, don't mistake that for the kingdom not expanding and growing. The church is not the same thing as the kingdom. The kingdom of God is always growing, always changing lives, always spreading to the corners of the earth, and we know that one day God will ultimately establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Which brings us to our next point, our second point. That was a very long first point. The kingdom of God is for the birds. The kingdom of God is for the birds. It's one of the most disturbing images to his audience. The mustard seed overtaking the garden so that birds can live in the garden. They're, they're rejoicing over the healing of this woman. They're, they're happy to see one of their own healed. But what Jesus is saying is that this restoration happening isn't just for their own people. It's actually for all the broken nations in the world. Jesus is essentially saying, Israel, your home, your garden, the, your place in the world that you're so desperately trying to protect and preserve, that's not what you're for. I've been planted within you and I'm going to transform you so that you become an abode for all of the nations to be blessed, for all of the nations to see the light of the Lord. You don't exist for yourself and your own purposes. You actually exist for my purposes of bringing all the nations into my family. When I was a kid, I had an arch nemesis. That's healthy, right? It's, it's healthy to have an arch nemesis when you're a kid. His name was Dustin. And it's really not healthy to have an arch nemesis. It was a joke. Failed. Uh, I can't remember. Like, I, I was racking my brain. I can't remember for the life of me why Dustin and I just despised one, or, not one another so much. Like, we did terrible things to one another. He attacked me with a ruler in class one day. But now is not the time, you know, just to recollect all the things we did to one another. What I remember is that one year, my mom made me invite Dustin to my birthday party. The agony. I was furious about it. My birthday party is about me, my friends, you know, my rules, my joy, my turf. It's, it's not for my enemies. And yet Dustin came into my home. And he didn't just come into my home. He came into my celebration and my joy. And surprisingly, it ended up being a, a small step towards peace between us. On a very basic level, we get how difficult this would have been for Israel to hear, how difficult it would be to hear that they exist for the birds. It would have been like being a victim in one of Alfred Hitchcock's movie, you know, The Birds. The nations, they're unclean. They're dirty, they're violent, they're dangerous. One thing that the many different sects of Judaism had in common was that they had to separate themselves from the nations. They had to be distinct from the nations. That the nations actually threatened their very existence. They see that through their scriptures and they knew that in the present tense. For example, Rome. Rome was the problem with the world to Israel. Rome usurped God's authority and compromised their longevity. And now what Jesus is saying is that a nation like Rome will actually find shade in the kingdom of God. It's a deeply disturbing conclusion to the parable for any Jewish listener. 
It means that their existence isn't for themselves, but for others, and not just for others, but even for enemies. The kingdom of God is deeply uncomfortable for anyone who wants it to look like themselves. The kingdom of God is uncomfortable for anyone who wants it to look like their own agenda and expectations. From the outside, it looks messy and unkempt and unclean. But from within, it is a home of radical hospitality. It is a place where God opened up his heart and welcomed us in. It is a place where healing and wholeness and peace and true unity is finally found. So there's an implication for us as the church. The church comes under the kingdom's reign and not the other way around. We can never exist for our own sake as the church. If we did, it would be a grievous sin. We don't exist for ourselves. St. Peter's can't be about constructing a church of similar looking people with similar looking hobbies with all the, you know, the same goals and aspirations. We have to continually submit ourselves to what God's purposes are for us within his kingdom. And what God tends to do is take us to places we're uncomfortable going, to people we're uncomfortable touching, and to issues we would rather not deal with. And my question for you is, are you okay with that? Are you okay existing for the birds? So bringing this all together, what is the kingdom of God like? A little thing overtakes the whole and provides for many. That's the gist of these parables. A little thing overtakes the whole and provides for the many. Which then I think we can conclude that the kingdom of God is a lot like its king. Although Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he became small. He became human. He became the form of a servant. He was a seed, quite literally. And he was planted within Israel, and he was planted within the earth, and he walked around, and he was initially just caring for Israel, for the broken, for the unclean, for the ones that were beyond hope. He said, no, the kingdom of God is chasing after you. And yet he was not satisfied with being planted and just caring for Israel. He was planted with Israel so that Israel could fulfill what Israel was always meant to be a blessing to all the nations, a light to the world so that all people could come to know God. And through his death and his resurrection, Jesus opens wide the entrance into the kingdom of God. Through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, Jesus became small. But his mission was invasive and it continues to expand and has become a home for the birds. It means the kingdom of God looks very strange when you look at its people but incredibly beautiful when you look at its king. And then you begin to see the king reflecting through all his people. And in this disjointedness, in this brokenness, in this difference, we start to see that God has something so much bigger and so much more beautiful in mind in establishing his kingdom on earth and ultimately establishing his kingdom when Christ returns. And so our hope as a church is not in our ability to bring about the kingdom, but in seeing God bring his kingdom on earth and praying that he would do that.